God's Word. We're continuing on in the book of Acts, and this morning we'll look at Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 19. Acts chapter 12, 1 through 19. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries were before the door, were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done to him, was done by the angel, was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran back and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, You are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, It is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down to Judea and Caesarea and spent time there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, this morning we take in our hands the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And we pray that it would go forth with great power and the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. May our lives be transformed because of Your Word. Father, don't just give us greater knowledge, but give us greater wisdom. And may our lives be different. May we not merely listen to Your Word and so deceive ourselves, but may we do what it directs us to do. Again, it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. May be seated. The 
There's a story about a seedy nightclub that opened up on Main Street. And when this happened, the only church in this small town organized an all-night prayer meeting and they asked God to burn down the nightclub. Within minutes, lightning struck the nightclub and it burned down all the way to the ground. Well, the nightclub owner heard about the prayer meeting and as a result, he sued the church and took them to court. Uh, The church said that they were not liable for damages. They insisted that they were innocent. The judge listened to the case and he said, regardless of where the guilt lies, one thing is clear. The nightclub owner believes in prayer and the church doesn't. (laughs) Now, that story makes us smile, but implicitly it contains a very penetrating question that each of us needs to ask. Do I believe? in the power of prayer? And does that belief give evidence in my life and how I live every day? The early church certainly believed in prayer and Dr. Luke in this book has already highlighted the importance of prayer in the life of the early church. Um, Just quickly, I'd like to go through a litany of verses that shows how important prayer was in the life of the early church. And I'd like to begin in the very first chapter. Acts 1.14, we're told all these, speaking of the believers, were with one accord, devoting themselves to prayer. So in the very first chapter, we're told simply that they were devoting themselves to prayer. In 1.23 and 24, uh, we see the disciples putting forward two men, and they are going to replace Judas, so there can continue to be twelve apostles. But before they make that decision, they pray. Now, that's very simple, but it's a good reminder. Uh, Before you make a decision, pray and ask for God's guidance. Pastor Joel Beakey said that when he was young, an older pastor gave him very good advice. He said, young man, in the ministry, time's going to come when you're going to be tempted to make a decision before you pray. Make up your mind right now that you will always pray before you make a decision in the ministry. And he said that was very good advice. And that's good advice not only for pastors in the ministry, but for lay people in everyday life. Before we make decisions, we need to bring those things before God. Now, I know all day long, you know, we make a hundred decisions. You know, what shirt should I wear? What socks should I grab? Uh, But we should be self-conscious that if things are important, if we're going to have lunch with someone, um, if we have some kind of business meeting, we should be very conscious right up front. I should pray and ask for God's guidance. In Acts 2.42, once again, we see that word devoted, speaking of the church, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Now, now this is a seminal passage for the church because right up front we're told that the early church committed themselves, they devoted themselves to four things. Teaching, fellowship, the Lord's Supper, prayer. These are four pillars of a healthy church. Moving on to chapter 3, again, just quickly. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. Luke could have just said it was the ninth hour. They're going up to, 
temple, but he's reminding us it's the hour of prayer. They're going to the temple specifically to pray. And then Peter and John in chapter 4 appear before the council and then they're released and they go back to the church. And in verses 24 and following of chapter 4, we see the early church praying to God to help because of this opposition that's taking place against the church. And then in 6.4, we see that widows in the church are being overlooked and they're calling upon the apostles to help. And they, and they say, we have to devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. Uh, which, by the way, for a pastor is very strong. Prayer and the ministry of the Word. Of course, there are other things that pastors need to do, but at the top of the list is prayer and the Word of God. And it's prayer that needs to come first because it's prayer that gives power to the Word. And then we have uh, the martyrdom of the first Christian, Stephen, who was stoned to death. And while he, he is being stoned at the end of chapter 7, in verses 59 and 60, we see Stephen praying. And we're amazed because he is praying just like Jesus Christ. Just as Jesus prayed on the cross, he said, Receive my spirit. And then just like Jesus, he prayed that this sin, the sin of stoning him, would not be held against them. And then going ahead to chapter 10, we have Cornelius praying. And as he is praying, an angel comes to him. And that's very important. Verse 4 says, And he stared at the angel. And we know from chapter 30, or excuse me, from verse 30 a little later, that while he was praying, the angel came to him. And then in verse 9, we see Peter, he's going up on the, the rooftop, and he's going up at the sixth hour to pray. And while he prays, he sees a vision. So I find it interesting. Cornelius prays, he sees an angel. Peter prays, and he has a vision from God. The moral of that narrative is that when you pray, strange things happen. When you pray, exciting things happen. And if your life is boring, if your life is monotonous, then I want to suggest to you that you try praying a little more and see if things may not happen. Even strange things, but exciting things. Now, I think just from the short litany of verses about prayer, um, I think we can see that prayer is absolutely vital for the well-being of the church and for the well-being of a Christian. Uh, neglecting prayer is not a little thing. Neglecting prayer is a sign of a huge spiritual problem. Greg Nichols put it this way. He said, A prayerless person is ungrateful because he does not thank God. He's self-righteous because he does not confess his sins to God. He's self-centered because he does not ask God to bless other people. He's presumptuous because he does not pray for his daily needs. He's irreverent because he does not praise God nor ask for his kingdom to come. And he is unfriendly to God 
because his prayerlessness evidences that he does not enjoy being with God. And as Bodhi Botham would remind us, if you can't say amen, you better say ouch. That's things, doesn't it? Prayerlessness says a lot about our spiritual condition. But while God's Word wounds, it also heals. And the point of the passage this morning is not to lay a guilt trip on us because of our lack of prayer. The point of the passage this morning is to encourage us to pray more. And I think it's true that one of the things that motivates us to pray more is answer to pr- answers to prayer. Don't you find that to be the case? You pray and God answers you, your prayer and you say, He really is listening. And you're encouraged to pray more and to call out to Him more. And when that happens, maybe there will be a great snowball effect and God will answer more and you'll pray more and He'll answer more and, and you'll pray more and life will become more and more exciting. But this passage this morning is given to us so that we would pray more, so that we would see that God is interested in our prayers and that God is responding to our prayers. This passage shows us that God works mightily through prayer. Let me personalize it. God works mightily in your life through prayer. That's how God operates. Now, the first thing I want to do is uh, look through this fascinating passage and then we'll consider some of the lessons that we can glean from it. Now, I want to begin in the middle a little bit with verse 5 because I think verse 5 kind of sets the stage for us. In verse 5 we read, So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, from an external vantage point, from a human vantage point, uh, Peter's situation looks pretty bleak. Looks pretty hopeless. He's in prison. And the context shows us just how bleak and helpless it is. Let's back up to verse 1. About that time, probably referring to the time of the famine, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. So the first Christian martyr was Stephen. Uh, This is the first apostle to be martyred. Uh, This is James, the brother of John, the sons of Zebedee. So he killed James with the sword. Um, He got his head cut off. And when he, Herod, saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now, the Jews despised having a Roman king over them. So, Herod's position was not a good position. He was their king. He was their ruler. But the Jews resented it. Often, they would rebel against the king. Uh, So, Herod sees that this is very good for his political career. Um, The Jews appreciate that he's coming against the church. Um, So, he's encouraged to continue right on with what he's doing. So he figures, well, if they like the execution of James, then they'll really like the execution of Peter. So the first thing he does after executing Peter is have soldiers go and arrest Peter. And that's exactly what happens. And then we're told the time frame. This was during the days of unleavened bread, which followed directly on the heels of the Passover. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him. 
Four squads of soldiers. This would be four soldiers times four soldiers, giving us 16 soldiers, probably guarding him through the four watches um, of the night and the day. And his intention was after the Passover to bring him out to the people and have him executed. Uh, but according to Jewish law, you could not execute someone during the Passover. You had to wait till Passover was over. So in a sense, Herod's hands are tied politically, so he has to be patient for a little while, wait for Passover to completely to be over, and then he'll bring Herod out before the people, have him executed, and they will applaud at how wonderful their king is. Verse 5. So, Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was being made to God by the church. Now, let's pause here just for a moment. We are not told what the church was praying specifically. I wish we were. But if we would use just a little bit of sanctified imagination, what kinds of things do you think the church might be praying for? Just think about that in your mind for a moment. Imagine your pastor is arrested He's in the Fox Lake Jail because he's been faithful to God. <laughs> Let me put that caveat in there. Uh, and you're going to gather together for a prayer. What, what might you be praying? I, I think the, the church was probably praying at least three things. Uh, they were praying that God would comfort Peter. And maybe they prayed something like, Lord, we ask that Your presence would be right there in that dungeon, that prison. We ask that Peter would experience Your peace that transcends all understanding and that even though his life is on the line, he would not be fazed by what is going on. That He would be a testimony to you. Doesn't that seem to make sense? They'd be praying something like that. And they also might be praying not only for the comfort of Peter, but for the deliverance of Peter. That makes sense as well, doesn't it? And I think they prayed something like this. Lord, we pray that You will call upon one of Your angels from Your side and send them down to that cell, deliver Peter, open the prison gates, and set him free. I think they prayed something just like that. And you might be saying, well, maybe for his rescue, but that precisely? Uh, do you really think that they prayed for God to send an angel? And I do. And you say, well, where do you get that from? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> I get that from Acts 5, 18 and 19. And while you're turning there, let me remind you that this is not the first time Peter has been thrown in the slammer. This is his third imprisonment. And you remember how he got out of jail the second time. I don't think you remember, so let me refresh your memory. Acts 5, verse 18. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. Verse 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand 
in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Isn't that awesome? They're in prison. God set an angel. Angels set them free and said, now you're going to go right back in the temple and you're going to preach the Word of God all over again. They said, okay. Go right back into the temple. The early church knew about this deliverance. So the early church is now praying during, during Peter's third imprisonment and they're basically praying, Lord, do it again. Do it again. Send an angel one more time. You did it last time he was in prison. You can do it again. Do it one more time. And we'll see in a few minutes that God said, okay, I'll do it again. I think they were also praying not only for the comfort of Peter and the deliverance of Peter, but I think they were praying for the judgment of Herod. And they were praying something like, Lord, uh, remove Herod from his throne. Arise! Defend your people. He is coming against us. We ask that you remove him from his office and in his place put someone who's favorable to Christianity. I think they were praying something like that. And if they were looking for scriptural support, maybe they turned to Psalm 2. Psalm 2 was a very popular psalm in the early church. We've already seen it earlier in the book of Acts. It talks about the ascension and throneman of Christ and how he's seated at the right hand of God the Father, ruling over the nations. And the Father said, Ask of me, and I will give the nations as your inheritance, the ends of the earth as your possession. Then verse 9 says, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And then verse 10, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, including you, Herod. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. This includes you, King Herod. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Maybe the early church prayed something like, Lord, we pray that Your wrath would be kindled against King Herod. Sometimes we're nicer than God. We're we're afraid to pray these imprecatory psalms, as theologians call them prayers against enemies, but Israel prayed against their enemies all the time. We have to realize that we're involved in a spiritual battle and we have enemies. And it is appropriate to pray against them. The early church did that. They prayed against their enemies. And God answered every single one of those prayers. So let's look at how they were answered. Back to Acts 12. We'll pick up the story, verse 6. Now Herod was about to bring him out on that very night. So Luke is making the context very clear for us. On that very night. Passover is now over. He's going to bring him out on that very night. This is Peter's very last night, as Herod thinks, ready to bring him out before the people and have him executed. Peter was... Children, look at me. Children, look at me. What was Peter doing just before he thought he was going to be executed? Sleeping like a baby. And and he really was. He was sleeping so soundly that the angel had to poke him to to get him to wake wake up. Wow, he's, he's really sleeping. Peter was sleeping. This is wonderful. 
How could he be sleeping? It's the last night of his life. Herod's planning on bringing him out. Because God's people were praying for him and God answers prayer. Now, there could be another answer as well. I do believe the church was praying that, again, I think it just, it just makes sense. But there's another reason. In John 21, if you'll recall, back when we were in the Gospel of John, Jesus prophesied about the death of Peter. Do you remember that? Why don't we just turn to it just a few pages back. John 21, verse 18. And I, and I love this. Um, this prediction, and I saw something this week that I've never seen before, and I, I find it fascinating. John twenty one eighteen, Jesus says to Peter, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you not want to go. And then John interjects this parenthetical thought. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. So, Peter denied Christ, but Jesus says, guess what? You're never going to do it again. In fact, you will glorify me through your death because you're going to die as a martyr. So, I've often thought that Peter probably had conflicting responses to that. On the one hand, positively, he was saying, I'm going to persevere. I'm not going to give in. Good, I'm glad I'm going to persevere. But on the other hand, he was thinking, but I'm going to be martyred. But again, let's not put these apostles up here. They were human. Peter's told he's going to be martyred. That's a little bit of a frightening thought, is it not? It frightened me if God said, you're, you're going to be martyred for me. I am, okay. Better, better brace myself. Now, this is, this is what I really didn't notice before. Obviously, I'd read it, but it, it didn't really hit me. He said, when you are young, you dress yourself. When you are old, then you will be taken. You will be martyred. So, Jesus is also predicting something else that I overlooked. He's also predicting that Peter is going to live to be an old man before he's martyred. So, Peter knows that. Peter's not an old man yet. Peter knows this prophecy. So, I think the church is praying for Peter, but Peter is also saying, Yes, it's true. I'm going to be martyred. Jesus already told me that. I know that's coming. But it's not going to happen until I'm old. Herod, you can't touch me. (laughs) I am invincible until God's work for me is done and I'm an old man. You can't stop me. Jesus told me I'm going to be an old man. I thought that is absolutely fascinating. So until he's an old man, he could go wherever he wanted to. He could go. He could walk up right up to King Herod if he wanted to. He could grab his nose and twist it. <laughs> you can't touch me. God's got a plan for him. And I said this before, but I'm going to say it again. When I go away and Michelle gets nervous, I remind her, honey, your husband is invincible. He is immortal. Until God's work for him is done, you have nothing to worry about and the same is true for you. You are immortal. You are invincible until God's work for you is done. So you can sleep like a baby in a prison cell. On another occasion, we'll see this in Acts 16, uh, Paul's in prison and he's singing hymns and praying in prison. 
And it's interesting. So when the apostles are thrown in prison, they they sleep, they sing, they pray. And it's just, just a reminder, if you're ever thrown in prison, just remember that's a good place to sing and pray and get a good night's sleep. All right, moving on. Where is Peter? He's between two soldiers bound with two chains with sentries before the door guarding the prison. Now, Luke is being very intentional in letting you know that Peter's situation is bleak. The soldier on this side and the soldier on that side and and, and he's bound with, with two chains. Kind of reminds you of Jesus between two thieves. And he's bound to a cross. And he's guarded at the cross. And you have guards outside. And, and, and Luke is doing this on purpose to show, wow, it really looks helpless. How is he going to get out of this? And, and I think God is doing this just to make it more dramatic. I, I thought of Houdini. And I know that's kind of a poor analogy. But, you know, Houdini the magician, you know, he would get into like a milk can of water and they would say, nope, we're going to make it more dramatic. I want you to put handcuffs on me. And they would say, nope, we're going to make, make it even more dramatic. Now I want you to put the chains on the outside of the milk carton uh, so I can't get out of that. And you, and you just add all these things to make the escape more exciting when he does it. That's what God is doing here. God is just setting the whole thing up. God knows what He's going to do, but He's setting the whole thing up so when it happens, it's all the more exciting for His people and He gets more glory. Verse 7, And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. So light comes into the cell. It doesn't wake Peter up because he's sound asleep. Remember, he's snoring like a baby. Um, the angel struck Peter on the side and woke him up saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands all by themselves, fell off. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself, put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. So you know that in this culture, they would wear long cloaks. Um, we call them in our culture dresses. Okay, but they go all the way down. Uh, but when men wanted to run, they, they would grab the cloak and they would you know, wrap it around their waist so that it wouldn't knock their knees while they're running. So, Peter is being prepared uh, for an escaper and he's being prepared to run, which is why he's wrapping it around himself. And he went out and followed him and did not know that what was being done to him by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. So, in chapter 10, remember, he was in a trance and he's probably thinking, okay, this is another one of those visions. God tends to bring them into my life. Uh, so he doesn't think this is actually happening. And he thinks he's just seeing this. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate. By the way, I'm not dogmatic here. Again, I'm just trying to use some sanctified imagination. Um, I think the guards are awake. Uh, one commentator said that the guards were sound asleep, but we are not told that. Um, and if you were a guard, you would not sleep on the job because it would cost you your life. So I think these guards are wide awake and Peter and the angel are walking right past these guards, right through the doors. Uh, but for whatever reason, because God is intervening, they just don't see it. Uh, but regardless, um, Peter is walking 
uh, right out of the cell, uh, right out of the prison, um, to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them of its own accord. So they're walking. The gates just open right up. And they went out and went along one of the streets. So Peter's walking with this angel. And immediately the angel left him. So now he's standing there all by himself. And then verse 11 says, When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Namely, my execution. So he's standing there in the middle of the street. He realizes, no, this is not a dream. It actually happened. God, once again, has delivered me. And I think he runs to where the believers are gathered together. Verse 12. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. Who are they praying for? Peter. Peter. They're praying for Peter. And the answer to their prayers is standing right outside the courtyard, right outside the gates. So they're still praying for Peter. So Peter uh, goes to the door of the gateway. He knocks. A servant girl named Rhoda answers the door. Now, Rhoda, I think she was just uh, one of these gals, just lots of enthusiasm, lots of excitement. I, I just see her personality coming through here. So, Rhoda answers the door. She recognizes Peter's voice. That's, that's important. Um, in this culture, they would say that if you were at the gate, you would call out. So, Peter probably says, someone's coming, and they probably said, who is it? And Peter says, it's Peter, Simon Peter, because we're not told that she saw Peter, we're told that she recognized his voice. So she recognizes his voice. She's so excited, she doesn't open the gate, she runs back to the believers and leaves Peter standing at the gate. Don't ever tell me there's not humor in the Bible. (laughs) This is funny, is it not? I mean, this is really, I mean, Got to at least make you smile. So she runs back, leaving Peter there at the gate, still knocking at the door. Where'd she go? She goes back to the other believers and she says, It's Peter. I recognize his voice. And they said to her, Remember, this is the church and all their faith. This is wonderful. God has answered our prayers. We knew it. They say, You're out of your mind. You're nuts. You're a whack job. But she kept insisting, No, it's Peter. I'm telling you, I heard his voice. And they said, It is his angel. That's interesting. Um, Jewish custom, they believe that a guardian angel could take on the appearance of the person they were guarding. Um, now, this is something you children need to understand. Uh, you have not only a guardian angel, but in Matthew 18.10, it talks about guardian angels. You are never alone. God has angels surrounding you wherever you go. And maybe you've even seen them, but maybe you didn't recognize that it was an angel. But they are around you. Uh, this morning, maybe you didn't realize it, but we worshipped in the presence of angels. Uh, Hebrews 12 describes angels, or 
uh, describes the worship of the church. And it, sa- it says that we ascend to the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city, in the presence of angels, in the presence of the spirits of righteous men who have died and gone before, in the presence of Jesus Christ, in the presence of God. That's where we worship every Lord's Day. And if God would open our eyes, we would see it. We would see the angels all around us. We would see Jesus Christ. We would see that we are actually in the heavenly realms. You're never alone. You're never alone. You really could say some evening when you're, when you're laying in bed, Good night, Mom. Good night, Dad. Good night, angels who are watching over me. They are right there. So they think it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking. I mean, you can just picture it. And then they finally go to the gate. So, okay, let's, let's check on this. They go to the gate. They opened it and they saw him and they were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, which reminds us there must have been a lot of commotion. It is Peter! He was right! You can, they're all excited. And Peter, you know, Peter, keep, keep it down. We don't want the authorities to hear. Keep, keep it down. So he motions with his hands. Uh, for them to keep it down. And he describes to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he told them the whole thing. And he said, tell these things to James. That's not the James who was just executed. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus, um, who would become a, a leader in the Jerusalem church. And we'll see him in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem council. Tell all the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place for a while. Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had come up here. I just love that. It's just from a literary standpoint, I love that phrase, no little disturbance. It's just a, it's one of those brilliant, uh, subtle, uh, you know, toning it down. Um, and after Herod searched for him, and, and can't you just picture Herod and his red neck because he is just about as angry as can be? After Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Um, the law of the Romans was that if a prisoner escapes, uh, soldiers guarding him would receive the punishment that the, sol- that the prisoners were to get, which is a reminder that they really did intend on executing Peter. Um, so the soldiers guarding Peter were executed uh, because they were derelict in their duties, as Herod would see it. So, um, Peter was comforted while he was in prison. Uh, he was delivered from prison. Uh, the church was also praying for judgments upon Herod, and Lord willing, we will see that next week. We will see the downfall of Herod. Now, um, in the meantime, what can we glean from this passage about prayer? And many things. But again, let me remind you that God works mightily through prayer. Let me ask you this question. Uh, if the church had not prayed for the deliverance of Peter, would he have been delivered? If nobody had prayed for the deliverance of Peter, would he have been delivered? I'm not going to be dogmatic, but I'm going to say probably not. 
Probably not. God has chosen to work through prayer. Charles Spurgeon said, whenever God plans on doing a great work, the first thing He does is set His people to pray. And you could say, well, God is sovereign. He ordains whatever He does, and He does. God ordains the means as well as the ends. So yes, God ordained that Peter would be rescued, but He also ordained that he would be rescued through prayer. And, and I raise that, that question to get you thinking and also to remind you that God works through means. Because I really do fear sometimes that we can be hyper-Calvinists and believe that God is sovereign. He's going to do whatever He wants. And I want to say, yes, God is sovereign. He's going to do whatever He wants. And what He wants to do is work through the preaching of His Word, work through evangelism, and work through prayer. God has ordained the means as well as the ends, which means He is sovereign in rescuing Peter and He is sovereign in leading His people to prayer. And I don't have to just quote Spurgeon. I can quote Scripture. Let me give you a fascinating verse. Zechariah 12.10 Second to the last book of the Old Testament. Zechariah 12.10 And there's a lot to this and I won't give you the whole interpretation, but I just want to point out one thing. This is the Lord speaking. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and please for mercy. Now, let me just tell you very simply what God is saying. God is saying, I'm going to pour out on the house of David a spirit of grace and prayer. Please of mercy. That, that's prayer. I'm going to pour out on my people spirit so that they pray. Why is going, God going to do that? So that when they look on me, on him who they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Now again, I'm not going to get into all that, but God wants His people weeping over the firstborn so He's going to lead them to pray. So see, I, I, I am such a believer in the sovereignty of God that I believe I'm praying because God's led me to pray because He wants me to you want to answer that prayer and bring about what He intends to do. So God is sovereign from the beginning to the end and throughout the whole process. Which, which I think gives us a very important point as well. Whenever you're motivated to pray, pray. And Joel Beakey also mentioned this in a message and it real, really stuck with me. He said, whenever you have an impulse to pray, pray. Rest assured, any impulse to pray is not from the devil. I can assure you, Satan and his demonic forces are not leading you and I to get down on our knees and to call out to the living God. He's not doing that. So where is it coming from? It's coming from God. And pay attention to it because it may go away. Joel Beakey was also honest and he said one time he was preparing a sermon and he had an impulse to pray, but... But he had these five ideas quickly run through his mind. I know how that is. You, you don't want to lose them. So he said, I 
quickly wrote down the five ideas and I preserved the five ideas, but I lost the impulse to pray. Pay attention to that. Again, God is sovereign. If God really is in control of everything that takes place, He's even in control of thoughts that come into our minds like praying. You, you never know what God wants to do, so, so pay attention to that. God wants to work mightily. Now, let's also be honest. You might be saying, well, does God always work mightily through prayer? And my answer is yes. And you might be thinking, well, what about James? When James was arrested, so from the time of his arrest, before his execution, did the church pray for him? And I say, I'm sure they did. So they called out for God to comfort James and they prayed that James would be rescued. Did God answer their prayers for James? Did God answer their prayers for James? I'm glad you're all saying yes. Because that's a little bit of a trick question. Because you might have been tempted to say, no, He didn't answer their prayers. But God did answer their prayers. God said, no, I'm not going to deliver James. That's an answer to prayer. But we don't know what else was happening. We don't know all the other details of how James died, the confidence that he had and the boldness that he had. Maybe, maybe James was even thinking, if God was really working in his life, I mean, you, you could see this. Maybe James was even thinking, now Stephen's been martyred. None of the apostles had been martyred yet. I could be the first one. Cool. I, I could be the first one to give my life for Jesus Christ. I would be happy to give my life for Jesus Christ. Maybe James was praying, Lord, let me give my life to You. Let me show that You are everything. Let me show the church that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Maybe James was praying, let me give my life to you. Maybe his prayer was answered. Maybe his prayer was answered, okay, James, I will give you the privilege and the honor to be the first apostle to be martyred. Maybe that was the case. And in Peter's case, he said, nope, you're going to live a little longer because I have ministry for you to do. And that's why we're here. That's, that's why Peter continued on, was it not? God had more ministry for him to do. And let's remember, that's why we're here. We, we have ministry to do. And, and whatever God has for us, let's leave that up to Him, but let's carry it out. I, be, I believe it was John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, who said, if there were two angels in heaven, and God said to these two angels, now I have two jobs that need to be done. One job is to have one of you guys, one of you angels, rule over the greatest empire on earth. And the other job that the other one of you will have is to be a street keeper in the ugliest city in the world. And if God were to say to these angels, now which job would you want? it would be a matter of complete indifference which task they were given. The angels would say, 
I don't care. Just tell me where you want me to go. Because their joy is derived solely from serving God. That's what brings them joy and satisfaction. Serving God. God, what do you want me to do in the church? I'll do whatever you want. I'll give the sermon. I'll clean the toilets. I'll cut the grass. I'll lead a Bible study. Lord, what do you want me to do? I, I don't care what you want me to do. What, do you, what do you want me to do? I only ask that you gift me and equip me for the task that you give me. But it doesn't really matter. Just show me what you're calling me to do. Because I know you are calling me to do something. And we need to be open to that. Peter got his assignment. That's why he was delivered so he could continue on with his task. We, we have our task. And maybe we need to start by, by praying what God has for us to do so we can really focus in on what God's calling us to do. God really does work through prayer. That's why the church was devoted to prayer. Because they knew. Let's get down on our knees. Let's cry out to God. God will work. And it's going to be so exciting to see what He does. Chapter 9, we, we saw the radical conversion of Saul. And of course, that's redundant because every conversion is radical. But we saw the radical conversion of Saul. Is anybody praying for him? We know at least one man was praying for him. What was his name? You remember? Stephen. Remember Stephen? Remember his prayer? Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Very next verse. No, it's the same verse. And Saul approved of his execution. No, it is the next verse. He's praying, don't hold this sin against them, including that rascal Saul right over there who's giving approval to this whole thing. And God said to Stephen, okay, and not only will I not hold this sin against them, but I'll, but I'll convert him. I'll answer your prayer, Stephen. That, that's how God works. Why does, why does God work this way? Very clear, and, and Spurgeon understood it very well. This, this is what Spurgeon said. And this is based on Psalm 50, verse 15. And maybe, maybe I'll just read the verse. I'll tell you what, I'll read the verse first, and I'll tell you what Spurgeon says, and we'll be done. Why does God work this way? There's, there's a reason, if that's not arbitrary. Psalm 50, verse 15. Call upon me. In the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. This is what Spurgeon says. First, there is your share. Call upon me in the day of trouble. That's our duty. We, we go through trouble. Our duty is to call upon God. Secondly, there is God's share. I will deliver thee. We call upon God, and He delivers us. Again, you take a share, for you shall be delivered. And you're delivered. That's your part. And then again, it is God's turn. Thou shalt glorify me. Here is a compact, a covenant that God enters into with you who pray to Him and whom He helps. He says, You shall have the deliverance, but I must have the glory. God has chosen to work this way so that we would call out to Him so that He could deliver us, so that we could praise Him and thank Him and that in the end, He would receive all the glory. Because we would know this is because of God. That's why God works this way. God works this way because it increases not only our joy, but also His glory. Let's close in prayer.